Okay, good morning and a uh, happy Erev Shabbos Hagadol. So um, we're, we're going to probably uh, shorten our class a little bit today, but uh, we do want to examine the Parsha. We're going to shorten it because it's Erev Shabbos Hagadol. And we're going to shorten it because Parsha Tzav may be the most challenging in the entire Chamishe Chumshe Torah to really learn in depth. In the sense that 98% of the Parsha is details about Korbanos. That even the Mepharshim, if you flip through the pages of the Mikros Gedolos, you'll find many of them went on their vacation for Parshas Tzav. They have much less to say, much fewer insights, much fewer commentary than they normally do. So I want to do is study the beginning of the Parsha and share with you what I think is a very important insight um, dealing with uh, something at the beginning of the Parsha. It's something that we may have spoken about before. Uh, and then I want to spend a few minutes on some Divrei Torah for the Haggadah. So we don't leave empty-handed. Uh, it's important to come to the Haggadah having prepared a little. Some Divrei Torah for the Haggadah. So that's the plan this morning. So the Parsha begins. Parsha Tzad, page 568 in the stone Chumash. Uh, just to give a little bit of an overview of the Parsha. Again, we're continuing now with the Karbanos. Sefer Vayikra, we're now making our way deeply into. The, uh, the Torah, just to remind you, because I think it's important to have a sense of context. Bereshus, again, is the story of the birth of a family. Bereshus is the story of a family, a family that's on a roller coaster, ups and downs, a family of conflict. You were here yesterday, Tanakh B'Shanah, so you heard this. But a family of conflict, and it's a family that struggles. Brother, sibling rivalry, parents who may not be on the same page in some circumstances, co-parenting or co-marriage in the sense of there being concubines. Um, it's a... It's a book riddled with, with family conflict until the end of the book when they're able to resolve it finally there is a generation of brothers that get along and particularly Menashe and Ephraim are the culmination some suggest that's why we bless our children to be like Menashe and Ephraim they are the first generation of brothers that get along there's no conflict um, they're able to have a sense of, of real brotherhood kinship and camaraderie so Bereshus is the story of the birth of a, of a family Shmos, that family transitions into becoming a people we went to Egypt as a family. In fact, the book of Shemos begins that way by describing as 70. We descended to Egypt as a family and we ascended out of Egypt as a people. We became a people. We were forged as a people through the experience and the process of the Exodus. And in fact, Pesach, part of the process of Pesach is a reaffirmation of peoplehood. It's reminding ourselves of the importance of that peoplehood. I'm going to talk about that a little bit. The Shabbos, Shabbos Agadol, we're studying Korech together, the Hillel Sandwich, which I found to be a fascinating topic, both halachically, historically, and the deep meaning behind it. You know, why did Hillel bundle the Matzah, Marah, and Pesach together with the Chacham and made them separately? What is the symbolism? Did it have something to do with Hillel's philosophy of life? Was Hillel a man of sandwich? Did he live a sandwich life of synthesis? Um, so we'll get into some of these questions also that also deal with the notion of Jewish unity and, and brotherhood and peoplehood. So we came out of Egypt, we became a, a people, we became a nation. And of course, what then charged our, our national identity was the seminal experience of the giving of the Torah. Har Sinai Matan Torah made us more than just a secular political entity. We weren't just a, a new people ex- having experienced a Semitic spring in Egypt and having come out free and liberated and now we became a secular political entity. No, Torah gave us a mandate and a charge that we were, we were to be a spiritual people. We were to be a light unto the nations and so on. Uh, but it's only in the book of Vayikra that now we become a holy people. Because the book of Vayikra is how to attain holiness. Vayikra is the laws of purity and impurity. It's the charge of the Kohanim, the priests. We are a mamleches Kohanim, a nation of priests. It, what it means to be able to live a sanctified life, a consecrated life, a life where we have a temple, 
style life, we could appreciate what it means to be pure. And of course, Sefer Vayikra has Parshas Kedoshim and Emor. It has the, the, the Parshas that deal with what does it mean to live a life of holiness, which by the way includes honest weights and measures, not gossiping, and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Yesterday I was talking to Carrie in our shul office. If you want to know how far, far our nice Irish Catholic girl has come, she was telling me why she loves the job so much. You get off for the Jewish holidays. You get to sit in the shul office talking Lashon Hara. That's what she said, Lashon Hara. Lashon Hara. Sure. Anyway, so you have the book of Ayikra teaches us you can't talk Lashon Hara. You have to have honest weights and measures. What does it mean to become holy? So we went from being a family to becoming a people to becoming a holy people. A people charged with a mission. And then Bamidbar and Dvarim take that even further steps. So part of that is sacrifices. Holiness is sacrifices. And that's what Parshas Vayikra last week we went through and learned about a number of the sacrifices. And this week Parshas Tzav continues. So it begins with the Trumas Adeshin, with the removal of the ash, which is what we're going to focus on for a few minutes this morning. Um, and then it continues with the Korban Mincha, the laws of the Mincha offering. A Mincha was a flower offering. Um, it had mixed of different ingredients. It was designed more for a person who couldn't afford an animal. Understand that if you turn the light switch on by accident, you walked in the bathroom at 2 a.m. on Friday night, and you forgot, you had a brain freeze for a moment, that it was Shabbos. You were confused. So you flipped the light on. If we had a base of Mikdash today, that meant, bless you, that you had to make your way to Yerushalayim. You had to purchase an animal, which is not cheap. I, I haven't investigated recently the cost of a, of a sheep, a bull, an ox, a cow, um, goat. But then I can imagine that purchasing the entire animal is not cheap. You had to then stand there and go through the process. So that would be a korban chatas. But these different sacrifices were not inexpensive. In fact, that's how the parsha begins. Tzav, which Lashon Ziruz. We had to act with alacrity. A person would not want to uh, fulfill this because it comes at a great personal expense. If you think Jewish day school tuition is expensive, every time you're, you're over 13-year-old, then flip the switch on by accident, you had to buy an animal... Boy, that would add up pretty quickly. So the meal offering, the korban uh, mincha, which was made from flour, was an alternative for a person who could not afford uh, to be able to bring the, the animal. And then we have a korban chatas, the sin offering, as I mentioned, if a person did a sin by accident, not on purpose. And then we have the Torah Asham, the laws of an asham, a guilt offering, when is that brought, what, what needs to be violated for that, gifts to the kohanim from the different, some of the korbanos that were offered... Uh, parts of the animal were given to the Kohanim. In fact, that's how they ate. They ate delicious barbecue all the time. The Kohanim must have suffered from gout between the, all the red meat they ate and everything. Yeah. Um, but other of the animals, like the carbon ola, the entire carbon was consumed on the fire. The, the um, how do you translate carbon ola? The elevation offering. Is that what it's called? Elevation offering? So all of the animal was consumed by the fire, which is again the beginning of the parsha. Why some suggest the kohanim needed an extra push and extra encouragement because they weren't motivated to, to supervise the carbon that they didn't get supper out of. Um, so you have a carbonola, then you have the the carbon toda, page five seventy four, which was the Thanksgiving offering. When was the carbon toda brought? Carbon toda was brought. When a person wanted to express gratitude, the Gemara Brachas gives us from four categories of people who would bring the Korban Toda. If you crossed the desert without uh, any problems, you survived. If you were imprisoned and released from prison. If a person recovered from a serious illness. And if a person crossed the sea and made it out alive. Those four categories sound familiar? Yeah. We do something today when a person... We bench Gomel. The Gemara says, now that we don't have the Korban Toda, we can't bring a meal offering, we can't bring a, I'm sorry, a Thanksgiving offering, so we replace it with a bracha. 
we recite a prayer, we say thanks in a different way. And that's the Birches Agoma corresponding with these four categories. That's why when a person flies over water, when you say Birches Agoma, any illness, life-threatening illness, debilitating illness, incapacitating illness, what, what are the criteria for which illness you say Birches Agomel? Which flight do you take? If you're flying from uh, Miami to Atlanta, you're not crossing water, do you make a Gomel? When do you bench Gomel? That's all for another time. Birches Agomel is modeled after the Korban Toda. I'll tell you a very brief word on the Korban Toda. It's my favorite one. Shechter quotes it uh, often. That the Korban Toda is in the family of Korban Shlomim. It falls under the Shlomim category. Now normally a Korban Shlomim, one has two nights and two days after bringing the Korban to consume its meat. Two nights and two days to finish the meat. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner, you're barbecuing. It's delicious. Unbelievable. Fantastic. It could be on a great Atkins diet. You don't have to have it in a sandwich. That's for Korach. That's the Shabbos. Hillel was clearly not on the Atkins diet. Although we'll talk about it on Shabbos. Hillel, not only unlikely, there's no way that Hillel put his his uh, carbon Pesach and Maror between two pieces of brittle cracker like matzah. Korach doesn't actually mean sandwich. Anyone know what the proper translation of Korach is? Wrap. It was a wrap. If you want to envision what it was, it was literally a shawarma in a lava bread. You took your lamb and mixed it with lettuce, a little spice, a little harif, and you put it in a wrap, in a lava bread, and you wrapped it and you ate it. So we're going to go on a tangent to Shabbos on the question of can Ashkenazim use soft matzah? Mm-hmm. Svaradim today continue to use what's the equivalent that looks like a pita bread or a lafa bread. Is an Ashkenazi allowed to use lafa? When did there become a custom for Ashkenazim that matzah was hard and brittle and for Svaradim was soft? Can you make a wrap? And you may be very surprised by the outcome, by what will, uh, the, the conclusion that will come to. So the sandwich, that was Hillel. But in the base of Mikdash, you got delicious, other than the carbon mincha, the flour offering, but you, got, you had the, uh, the meat. So a carbon shlomim is two nights and two days. But if you look in our parsha, the Thanksgiving offering, offering the carbon toda, was not like a normal shlomim, two nights and two days. How long did one have to consume it? One night and one day. Half the time, 50% of the time. Why is that? And how do you do it? That's a lot of meat to eat in a very short time. Like the Korban Pesach. Korban Pesach had to be consumed by when? That night. What did that force you to do? You ate it in a Chabura. Family, friends, you surrounded yourself with people who you knew could eat well. And then you, uh, then you shared the, uh, the animal, the barbecue together. So then it's Sivra. Natalia Tzvi Yehuda Berlin has a beautiful insight. He says, the Korban Toda is different than every other Shlomim. Why? Because if you really want to offer Thanksgiving, you don't do it by yourself, isolated, independently, privately. When you want to offer Thanksgiving, when you want to say thank you to the Almighty for having survived, for having been restored to good health, for having overcome an obstacle or a challenge, you gather people around you and you proclaim the kindness, the compassion, the goodness of the Almighty in front of others. So by limiting and requiring you to eat in one night and one day, by forcing you to complete the Korban Toda in one night and one day, you had no choice but to invite other people to be with you. So this, as the Nitziv, is the origin of Asuda Soda. The idea that when a miracle occurs, when a person experiences, you don't just say, you know what, I'm going to write a check. You know what, I'll say an extra capital to Hillel. You know what, I sit by myself in the corner, I say, thank you, you're magnificent, you're benevolent, you're so kind, you healed me but you gather family and friends and you proclaim the goodness of Hashem in front of others. All this is derived from the Karban Toda. Rabbi, don't we 
Gomel's preferably recited. Gomel is required to be before, in front of a minion. Yeah, similarly, you have to do it in front of others. Then the parsha tells us the law of pigul. Pigul is a rejected offering. It comes disqualified when this is a fascinating halacha. If the person bringing the sacrifice does everything right. It's the right animal. The animal doesn't have a blemish. It's organized. Everything is right. But they have an improper thought. Their mind has wandered. They are not present. They're not mindful. They're not conscious of what they're doing. They're not cognizant and aware. It's disqualifying. Disqualifying thoughts. There's different types. But, uh, but that's the law of Pigo, which is a fascinating area of halach. It's a precedent really for all mitzvahs. That, you know, and, and, and in some ways, by the way, it's a precedent for prayer. Prayer is modeled after sacrifice. The world exists on three things. Torah, Avodah, Gemilas, Chasadim. It's the Mishnah in Avos. Avodah means sacrifice, service in the temple. The Gemara in Baruch says, Eizahi Avodah Shebelev. Today we don't have the sacrifice in the temple. What's Avodah Shebelev? What have we replaced it with? Avodah Shebelev, Zutfila. It's prayer. And that's indeed our, our uh, prayers are modeled after the sacrifices. Shachras Min Chamarv. Modeled after Musaf, because the day that a Korban Musaf was offered. It's modeled after the sacrifices. So Pigul is very instructive. That just like an extraneous thought, a distraction, can disqualify the sacrifice, so too if you're standing there davening, you're saying all the words of the sitter. You're, you could, at the end of davening you say, I did it, I said every word, I made it from the beginning to the end, I went through all the details, technically I fulfilled and discharged my obligation, but did your mind wander? Then it was a disqualifying thought. Pigul can apply in the world of, of tefillah. Um, you're not allowed to eat in a state of contamination. A person has to be pure. What happens with the fat and the blood? Page 578. The fat of the ox, sheep, and goats you cannot eat. The fat of an animal that died, the fat of the animal that's been torn to death can be used. Anyone who eats the fats... Soul will be cut off. You'll get karis. You're also not allowed to eat the blood. Elsewhere, the Torah tells us again. It's actually very fascinating how much the Torah needs to reinforce the prohibition. You're not allowed to drink blood. Mm-hmm. Why does the Torah need to keep reinforcing that? By the way, animal blood you can't drink. Are you allowed to drink fish blood? Yes. The answer is fish blood is kosher, but. You wouldn't be allowed to drink fish blood in a cup because no. someone might not distinguish it between animal blood and fish blood and it would be marasai and they might suspect you of drinking animal blood. Mm-hmm. Shulchan Aruch says you're only allowed to drink fish blood if you have the scales there where someone would know. Human blood. What about human blood? No. Human blood actually is not prohibited. Well, we don't drink human blood in the sense that we're not, um, what do you call it? Cannibals, Cannibals right? right? But um, it means to say... If you have a if you have a, a cut on your finger, you shouldn't drink the blood. If you have a cut in your mouth, you're not obligated to spit out the blood. The blood itself is not considered non-kosher. The Torah says in a number of places, "Rakes adam lo sochelu," which the Mefarshim and the Rishonim point out. Why does the Torah have to reinforce us something that we would otherwise find disgusting, something that we would otherwise find repulsive? And they conclude, if the Torah goes out of its way to reinforce and encourage us to avoid that which we would otherwise find repulsive, then all the more so how careful, vigilant we have to be with that which we find to be a temptation. I just want to share with you, Rav Hirsch has a brilliant insight. Rav Hirsch's whole analysis to Korbanos is as follows. Korbanos is, because from our perspective, in the 2012 year, we look, we say this is archaic and arcane and barbaric sacrifices. We can't relate to it in the least, says Rav Hirsch, 
who too lived in a rationalistic world. He had to justify and defend Torah in, in Germany in the 19th century. Refersh explained so beautifully, Karbonos are, it's all symbolism. I think we, we may have touched on this. It's all symbolism. When a Jew, when a human, when a non-Jew for that matter was allowed to bring it carbon, would come to the temple to the Beis HaMikdash and bring that animal, they were making the following statement. God, there is a constant battle and struggle that wages within me constantly. This is the theme of all of Tanya. I have an animal soul and I have a godly soul. My godly soul is disciplined. My godly soul is sovereign. My godly soul has self-control. My animal soul, my nefesh behemoth, is, is impulsive, impetuous. It desires something, it experiences temptation, and right away it gives in. We use that in our vernacular. Eat like a pig, act like an animal, your room is a pig stop. That's what we describe someone like an animal. So we constantly live that war. I see the piece of chocolate cake, my nefesh behemis, my animal says, eat it, yesterday you didn't eat so much, you can make up for it, you had to go for a walk later today, it's fine, eat it, you're if the animal even says that, it may just reach for it and eat it, right? The godly spirit says, you don't need it. And a minute later, you know, it's, it's not going to provide any joy. What do they say? A moment on the lips is a lifetime on the hips. Says, uh, so your animals, your, your godly soul says, you could have self-control. It's a constant battle. All of Torah is designed, all of halacha, all of Jewish life and living is designed to help the godly soul triumph over the animal soul. All of halacha is to appreciate within the world of time, within the physical world of temptation, within relationships, how can my godly soul triumph over my animal? When you'd walk into the Beis HaMikdash with that animal and slaughter that animal, what you're saying to God is, I am slaughtering the animal soul in me. God, this behemoth is my nefesh behemoth. This animal is symbolic of my animal soul, of my animal impulse, of my desire to be a pig, to be piggish. And when I slaughter it, I am symbolically slaughtering that which is in me, which is negative, which is tempting. And then says Rafershi continues, then you take the fats and you burn them. Why? Fats represent indulgences. I take all of indulgences and luxuries, God, and I'm burning them. Flour. Flour is man's basic necessity. Bread. I take the, the staple of life and I dedicate that to you, God. Wine. Wine libations. Wine represents luxury. God, I dedicate luxury to you. It says, refresh every detail of all of the karbonos is all based on beautiful symbolism. That when a person would be exercising it, when they'd be going through it, whether it's burning the fats, whether it's not drinking the blood, why what's blood? It's man's passion. Passions are directed towards you, God. Wine, luxury, flour, simplicity, basic necessity. All of it was symbolism directed towards Hashem. It makes you look at Karbanos from a totally new perspective. Not barbaric, arcane, and archaic, but really very contemporary. Our generation perhaps needs as much as any this symbolism. I'm not suggesting necessarily through animals. We don't have a base of Mikdash. We're not allowed to uh, bring sacrifices today. Although last year, Shabbos HaGadol Drasha, we talked about many attempts throughout history, as recently as uh, within the last century, to bring back the carbon Pesach. It may not require the temple. But uh, we don't bring sacrifices today. But that symbol, the message of the symbolism is as needed today as it ever was. The parts in their order, the consecration of the uh, Kohanim is, uh, is how the Parsha ends. Okay, so let's get into what I wanted to look at for a few minutes this morning. It's the beginning of the Parsha. It's the question of the Trumas Hadeshen. What is the Trumas Hadeshen? 
the very first thing that was done in the morning was removing the previous day's ashes from the altar. That which was consumed by fire and produced ashes, removing the ashes from the altar. So the parsha begins, Vaydaber Shema Moshe Lemor, God spoke to Moshe saying, Savas Aaron Vesbanav Lemor, command Aaron and say, Zos Torah Saula, Hi Haula Al Mokdam is Beach Kolalila Raboker, Veisham is Beach Tukad Bo. Command Aaron and tell him and his sons, This is the law of the Karban Ola, of the elevation offering. It's the offering that stays in the flame on the altar all night until the morning, and the fire should be kept aflame on it. As I said, the Karban Ola was entirely consumed by the fire, so you left it burning throughout the night. You had a delicious aroma of a barbecue through the night. And in the morning when you got back, what was left? Yeah, in the morning when you got back, what was left was a pile of ash. Why this Lashon Tzav? I alluded to it a few moments ago. Tzav, we don't find that. Normally it's Daber al-Aram v'al-Banav, Amor What's Tzav? Says Rashi, Ein Tzav ela Lashon Ziruz miyad uladoros. It's quoting from the Gemara in Kedushan, that the word Tzav, when you hear Tzav, which means a commandment, it is indicating three things. Number one, zeros, alacrity, zeal, enthusiasm is required here. You don't have to command someone something that they would otherwise be excited to do. If I say to my kids, we're going to Disney, I don't have to command them, pack your stuff and get in the car. All I have to do is tell them because their own enthusiasm would be internally motivated, self-produced, they'd be ready to go. When do I have to command someone? When I need to generate enthusiasm because their motivation is not necessarily internal. Miyad Uladoros, immediately Uladoros and for generations. Omar Rabbi Shimon, Okay, sorry, continuing. Um, so Rashi says it's Lashon Zeros. Why did they need the extra encouragement? What was the hesitation they might have had that they needed to have this extra encouragement? So that's what we mentioned earlier, is that, and the, the uh, Orachayim HaKadosh here gives a few different options, as does the Kliyakar, what might have been the cause of their delay, of their hesitation. Orachayim says it depends who it was. For the, if you look in the second paragraph of the Orachayim, Some say it doesn't really mean a financial um, expense. Elohu adin it means that it required great exertion, great physical effort. Some say the carbonola had to be on the fire the whole night, so you had to be supervising it the whole night. That meant you didn't sleep, or it meant you couldn't work, you couldn't be doing other things. That was the chesron kiss. The personal sacrifice came having to supervise it through the night. The Jew can't keep the limbs of the animal because he can't enjoy the barbecue because it all gets consumed by the fire. Some say no, it's the Kohen who has to make the sacrifice. Other sacrifices, he would be getting a portion of the sacrifice. This one, the whole thing gets consumed. The Orachayim rejects them all. He says, that's not what the sacrifice is. What's the sacrifice? He says it's the details of the Karbanola. The Orachayim gives a whole other explanation. What's the Chesron kiss? So that's the first sacrifice the Parsha is dealing with, is the Karbanola. 
But I don't want to focus on the extra encouragement that's necessary. I want to focus on the next Pasuk. Pasuk. Pasuk Gimel. The Kohen puts on his linen garment and his linen pants and he separates the ash from the fire consumed and he places it, where does it go? Next to the altar. He then removes his garment, puts on other clothes, removes the ash from outside the camp to a pure place. The fire is kept burning on the altar, is not extinguished. That is the halacha of what we call the truma sadeshen, removing of the ash. So he puts on clothing to remove the ash, he places it next on his bach, changes his clothing and takes that ash to another place, a pure place, outside of the, excuse me, outside of the camp. So he shovels up the ashes and he places it on the floor, east of the ramp that leads to the altar. Now, why is he changing his clothing? What's going on with the clothing change here? So says Rashi, somewhere, Ufashat is big adab, says Rashi, Pasuk Dalad, Ein Zuchova. When the Torah says he changes his clothing, the Torah is not indicating an obligation. El Torah is just indicating what's common courtesy, what's etiquette. Because the very same clothing is going to use in service of Hashem, it would be inappropriate to soil them by taking out the garbage in them. The clothing that you wore to prepare the meal for your Rebbe, you don't wear to serve your Rebbe. So he puts on his dirty clothing in order to take out the garbage, but he doesn't take out the garbage in the fancy same clothing that he's going to serve Hashem with. This is very instructive to us as well, that you don't come to Shul and Davin in the same clothing that you take the garbage out. A person should dress to Davin. A person should prepare in appropriate clothing. Now, not everybody agrees with Rashi's interpretation. Look at the Ramban. He says, no, Rashi's wrong. Bigadam Acherim does not mean you put on Big Day Chol. You're not allowed to. Removing Trumas Adeshin was not um, extraneous to the service of the Temple. It was part of the service in the Temple. It was an act of service itself. Certainly you didn't wear the same clothing, certainly you shouldn't soil clothing, certainly you wear clean clothing, pristine clothing, royal clothing, dignified clothing when you're serving Hashem. But even when you took out Hashem's garbage, that too was part of the service. And says the Ramban, it is not Rishus, it is a Chova, it is a obligation. That's the opinion of the Ramban. What are they disagreeing about? The role of Trumas Adeshin. Is taking out the garbage a mundane act? Is taking out the garbage a sacred act? Is taking out the garbage just a necessity? It's a necessary evil because otherwise it would pollute the area that you want to be and you got to remove the garbage, you have no choice? Or is taking out the garbage itself a sacred step in the formula of serving Hashem? That, that there's a... Con- 
it, the ash, the, it's, it's the ash is essentially were garbage because they were disposing of them. That which we dispose of, the rubbish, they were removing it. So, no, they removed it. So, so what is that role? Rabbi Friend uh, describes beautifully an experience once on Erev Yom Kippur where he's ready to go to shul, he's wearing, he's dressed in his finest, he's showered and shaved and ready for Yom Kippur, angelic, feeling angelic, having donned his, his kittel, wearing his white kittel, looking and feeling like an angel, and as he's taking leave to go to shul, his wife says, to me if ever, could you just take the garbage out on the way out? And, at the, and initially he felt it a contradiction in terms, dressed as an angel, angelic, not even feeling a physical entity, there's no goof up here in the Shema, and I gotta take the garbage out? And then he realized that taking the garbage out, your wife asks you, or simply because you're taking the garbage out, that's part of the service of the home, that that too is appropriate for the angel. It's not inconsistent or incongruous at all, it's perfectly consistent. So that's for the Kohen. For the Kohen, part of the service was removing the Deshen. Just hold the questions until, until the end. But there's one other aspect of it that I want to... Uh, one other aspect of it that I want to mention. Why is it that this was the very first thing that the Kohen would do? Because that's what the Parsha is describing. The Kohen's workday began, the very first thing he would do, he would prepare himself, he would purify himself, he would come to the temple, he'd come to the base of Mikdash. The very first thing the Kohen does is remove the previous day's ashes from the altar. Why is it the very first thing? Rabbeinu Bachya Ibn Pakuda, the Spanish, great Spanish commentary, author of Chovas Alavavos. So Rabbi Nebachi, in his commentary on Chumash, writes the following. The Creator commanded him to remove the ashes every single day, to make him humble, and to remove haughtiness from his heart. You see, the Kohen arrives at the Beis HaMikdash that morning. He feels a million bucks, right? Distinguished, elevated, he's got status, he's got yichus, he's a member of the elite. He feels a certain level of superiority. This is his time to shine. Remember, there were 24 different families of Kohanim who served on a rotation. This is his chance to shine. He feels superior. He's in the Beis HaMikdash. Lahavdil Elav Alve Avdalos. If you've been to the White House, you feel, I'm in the White House. He's in, walking into the Beis HaMikdash. It's his home turf. He's serving. There's a superiority over everyone else. Says Hashem, you know what the very first thing you're going to do is? Take out the garbage. Tough guy. Number one. Superior man. You know what the first thing you're going to do? Take out the garbage. Why? Because there's no arrog- room for arrogance in service. If the goal of being in the Beis HaMikdash is to serve Hashem, there is no room, there is no tolerance, there is no acceptance of haughtiness, of arrogance, of hubris when it comes to serving, when it comes to serving Hashem. So the very first thing that Kohen has to do is rid himself. This is also the message, by the way, of Chametz versus Matzah. Chametz is inflated like an inflated ego. Yeast is given a time to rise. Versus matzah, no ego, no arrogance. Matzah is the symbol of humility, which, by the way, is why matzah was eaten in the karbonos. There weren't, there's not chametz as part of the karbonos. There's no room for arrogance in the uh, in the base on mikdash. So that is the the message. So lest the Kohen delude himself to think that he is superior, that he has a greater relationship with Hashem, the very first thing that he does is an act of. Uh, that removes the haughtiness from his heart. He has to have a proper perspective. He has to be humble before he can even begin. And the same thing is true with us. Before you come to daven in the morning, before you daven at any point, to take a moment to reflect whether it's literally take out the garbage or figuratively take out the garbage, but it's not beneath us, we're not above it. 
that this is part of preparing ourselves for tefillah, for avodah shabalev, is to instill within ourselves a sense of humility and a sense of humbleness and to understand that we're not superior, we're not great, but, uh, but relationship with Hashem is predicated um, on the necessary prerequisite is to feel a sense of humility. So that is the avoda of the um, of the Truma Sadeshan, of the removal of the ash. It's what begins the Parsha and it is what begins the uh, the Kohen service each and every day in the Beis HaMikdash. I want to spend a few more minutes just, I'm sorry, hold the questions till the end. I want to spend a few more minutes to share just uh, some quick thoughts on the Haggadah to prepare, prepare for Pesach night. Uh, just a few things. Number one, Avadim Hayinu Leparo B'Mitzrayim. Something fascinating, an insight Dr. Lamb has in his Haggadah called the Royal Table. He notices that not only throughout the Haggadah itself, throughout Parshios, Shmos, Ve'era, Bo, B'Shalach, the entire Torah. Can anyone tell me what Paro's name was? Paro's name. Paro is not a name. Paro means president. It's a title. President, Prime Minister, Chancellor... Paro is a title, it's not a name. What was this Paro's name? This wicked villain who sought to destroy our people, who killed firstborn. Who was he? What was his name? The sovereign, they say, the sovereign, not mentioned anywhere in the Torah, not mentioned anywhere in the Haggadah. The sovereign of Egypt, never mentioned by name in the totality of Tanakh, in the Haggadah itself. That means to say that we go through Seder night recalling and recounting, fulfilling our obligation to trace our history. Could one ever tell the story of the Holocaust and not mention Hitler, Yamach, Shemov, Zichro? How could you describe the six million and so on and, and never mention that this was a man and his final solution and Mein Kampf and his goal? And yet here we are telling the entire story and we never mention his name. It remains for Egyptologists to identify him. And they're not all of one mind. Ramses or Anisha, a different despot. Who was he? They debate. And there's room for them to debate. Why? Because the Torah and the Haggadah never mention him by name. And the question is why? So Dr. Lamb shares that he heard a very interesting answer. He says, had his name been provided by the Torah, historians and psychologists and novelists would have speculated about him. His childhood, suggesting probable reasons for his atrocious behavior. He was weaned too early or too late. He had a harsh or strict father, edible feelings. His mother was overprotective. Some of the speculations might be true. Most probably would be not inaccurate. But this is the point. For the Torah, says Dr. Lamb, it's all irrelevant. The point of the Torah and the Haggadah's silence about his background is to avoid his escaping responsibility for his behavior. And this is particularly true in our time. He was brought up in a ghetto, he was underprivileged, he didn't get to go to college, he didn't this, his father was strict, he beat him as a kid, he was a, he was a uh, victim of abuse. Torah says, we don't care. No matter what his upbringing, we ought to judge a person, especially a leader, by his or her actions and insist upon accountability. By providing a name and thus an identity, we open the door to excuses and to the erosion of personal responsibility, says Dr. Lamb. So Paro's identity remains hidden because as far as we're concerned, we don't care what in his personality, character, or upbringing may have led to it. We care about accountability. And there's accountability for what he and his people tried to do. The explanations of the causes of a person's behavior may be of legitimate concern to a therapist treating a moral political monster, but to the masses of his victims, that is of no consequence whatsoever. We could care less about Hitler's upbringing. We could care less if Ahmadinejad was picked on as a child. 
that no way justifies their atrocious, hideous uh, behavior. The paro of the book of Shmos was a genocide and no one should provide for him or for his historical genocidal descendants any hint of an excuse. And hence, says Dr. Lamb, paro and no personal name because ultimately that is irrelevant. So that's one insight. Paro's name is never mentioned. Who was Paro? We don't know. We don't care. doesn't matter. Number two. I'll share another insight. This is from the Rav. We find God being referred to particularly in the Haggadah by a name of His which is not used that often. We know that God's name Hashem, Elohim, Kel, Shakai. We have other names for God. He is described as Kel Rachum Mechanun. Shalom is one of God's names. You're not allowed to say Shalom in a bathroom. Shalom Aleichem. You can't use Shalom as one of God's names. God has many names. One of the names that we refer to God by is the name or the word Hamakom. Mm-hmm. Hamakom. Mm-hmm. The place. Mm-hmm. And this finds an in disproportionate use in the Haggadah. Baruch Hamakom, Baruch Hu. Va'achshav kervanu Hamakom, La'avodaso. Kamamalos tovos, Lamakom, Aleinu. Over and over again, we refer specifically in the Haggadah to God as Hamakom. Why? Why is this name referred to so prominently in the Haggadah? So, there's like many Haggadahs that have now come out with the Divrei Torah of the Rav. All of them great. Last year, two years ago, one came out by Rabbi Yosef Adler, the Rav of Rinat in Tinek, and the principal, uh, the Rosh Menahel of uh, Torah Academy of Bergen County. So he had put out a Haggadah called Vayaged Yosef which are Rabbi Salavechik's thoughts on the Haggadah. So this piece he has in there, he quotes the Gemara in Chagiga. Gemara in Chagiga says, compares the initial revelations of Yechezkel and Yeshayahu. Yechezkel describes his initial vision of God in the first chapter, what he experienced we call Maisa HaMerkava, which is, we draw from very deep mystical, the Gemara tells us that not everybody should be studying it, now how far do we delve into it. Because Yechezkel is compared to the villager who is privileged to see the king on one special occasion. So since he only saw him once, he's filled with effusive praise and descriptive uh, terminology to describe the encounter, the soul encounter. Yeshayahu is not like the uh, villager who only sees God once. Yeshayahu is described as somebody who has a familiarity. He's the city resident. He has a casual relationship, a familiar relationship with God. He describes God in sixth chapter and it occupies only three psukim. Why is Yeshayahu so much more cavalier and casual in his, relation, in his description? Because he saw Hashem all the time. So when you're more comfortable, it's less impressive. You're less effusive. Yeshayahu offers prophecy during the time of the first temple when everyone could experience divine revelation. Everyone who entered the Beis HaMikdash encountered the Shekhinah. Mishnah Pirkei says there were miracles that took place on a daily basis. You felt Hashem's presence. It could be seen everywhere. So when Hashem appears to Yeshayahu, He doesn't elaborate. Kadosh, 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 and Malaychol La'aretz Kvodo. God is holy. He fills the whole world with His holiness. Yeshayahu lived during the time when one could see the king's palace every day. It describes as a city boy who had access to the king at all times. No reason to elaborate on his feelings and experience of divine revelation because it was a common occurrence. On the other hand, on the other hand, different than Yeshayahu, you have the prophet Yechezkel. Yechezkel offers prophecy not when anyone could go into the base of Mikdash, feel Hashem's presence, casual, comfortable, but rather Yechezkel offers at the time of the base of Mikdash destruction, as the Jewish people are exiled on their way to Bovel. In fact, went with them for a short time. When God appears to him, it is a most unusual experience. At that time, it's almost unique. 
So consequently, when he describes it, it's an effusive detail. He doesn't know whether he'll have the privilege of a second encounter. And so when it leaves him, he says, Baruch Kvod Hashem, Mi Mekomo. Mekomo Hanister. God is blessed not only where I can see Him everywhere, but God is blessed even on the way into exile, even on the way into bubble, even when God is concealed, not revealed, even when it's difficult to see Hashem in the world, Baruch Kvod Hashem, Mi Mekomo, he is still not Malechol Haaretz Kvodo, not like Yeshayahu, who sees Hashem as filling the whole world, but God is uh, praised Mimikomo in his place, which at the moment is hidden and concealed. And in fact, says Yechezkel, I'm willing to acknowledge Hashem, even if I will never have the privilege of seeing Hishchina, this revealed again. Makom then is the word we use, Baruch Hashem Mimikomo. Makom is the name we use to describe God in a state of Hester Panim, of hiding. That's why on Monday and Thursday, when we read, after we read the Torah, we describe, we think about our brothers who are Batsara Uvashivya, who are in suffering, and what do we say? May God have compassion, but which God? The God who is hidden, because our people are suffering, He's hidden at this moment. The Rav noted that also explains what is it we say when we leave a house of mourning? Hamakom Yanachim The Hashem who we can't see right now, who we feel is here hidden and concealed. The mourner's degree is to some degree has experienced Hester Panim, so we say Hamakom. I'll give you one other example the Rav didn't bring, but when Avraham is on his way towards the Akeda, it says, Vayar Hamakom Mirachok. He saw the place from afar. So I think maybe Rafresh says this. That Hamakom, meaning he was asked to do something unimaginable, to, to sacrifice his own son. At that moment, God was hidden from him. Vayar Hamakom, he saw Hashem, but Meirachok, it felt very distant at that moment. What does this have to do with the Seder night in the Haggadah? So the Haggadah is designed primarily for the experience of exile. The Rambam at the end of Chamat Zimata says, Nusach Haggadah Shinagubah Yisrael Bezman Hagalas Kachu. We remember the time of the exile. We remember being apart. We remember that even while we are being even while we're telling the story of redemption, we nevertheless remember. I'm going to talk about this on Shabbos as well. That Zecher Lamiktash Kehillel, at the height of the Seder, right when we're eating matzah and Mara saying the Halal, Zecher Lamiktash Kehillel. We have this stark and startling reminder, reality check. Gula, redemption, leaning, four cups. You look around. We're not in Israel. If you're in Israel, you look around. There's no Beis HaMikdash. There's rockets that are falling. Our Haggadah emphasizes the obligation of Sipri Yitzhak Mitzrayim applies equally to generations living in Israel, the Crusades, the pogroms, the Warsaw Rebellion, and every generation. And therefore, Hamakom is, is very subtly slipped into Haggadah to remind us, even in the moments of concealment, even in the moments where Hashem, it feels like He's hiding, nevertheless... Nevertheless, as the Rav, the, the Seder night remains uh, relevant then as well. Um, one or two more thoughts. So many thoughts. Um, I'll share one from the Chief Rabbi of the United Kingdom, Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs. Dayenu. Dayenu. Why is it that we're saying Dayenu? Do we mean, I mean, the biggest question with Dayenu is, would it have been enough to come out of Egypt and die in the desert? To get to our Sinai but not get the Torah? Do we really mean it? It seems like we're not entirely sincere. Each of these statements, do we really mean it? 
So there's a lot of different answers, but Rabbi Sachs gives a very compelling and a very meaningful, a very important one. I strongly encourage you to mention this at your Seder. But he basically explains that the Dayenu doesn't mean it would have been enough. Think about what, what is it we say in the Haggadah right after Dayenu? We go from Dayenu into Hallel. The Dayenu is, each of these would have been enough to compel us, to obligate us, to say Hallel. Dayenu into Halal is an exercise in Hakara Satov, in gratitude. And says Rabbi Sachs, if you look through each of the things enumerated in this poem, from slavery, for the journey from slavery to freedom, which by the way, there are 15 of them, has a deep association with thanksgiving. There are 15 Tehillim that all begin with Shir Hamalos. There are 15 steps in the Beis HaMikdash where the Levium stood to sing. The number 15 is very symbolic of the concept of Hakar Satov, of giving thanks, of gratitude. And for, in fact, that's the word Dai. Dayenu comes from Dai. Enough. It's like the Pasuk in Malachi, which we'll read in the Haftorah, the Shabbos before Pesach, which says, Hashem says, I will pour out blessing, Ad Bali Dai, which our, our Chazal translate, until your lips are exhausted through saying enough. Ad Bali Dai, till your lips say Dai, enough, till you have enough. This song, says Rav Sack so beautifully, is a tikkun. We are correcting the ingratitude that we had in the wilderness. At almost every stage of the way we complained. The water, the food, the difficulties of the journey, the challenges of conquering the land. So through this poem, we say, each of these things, Hashem, we weren't grateful, we complained. But now, Pesach night, Seder night, we are repairing, we are correcting. Dayenu lahodosu lahalo. Each of these things, God, rather than complaining, we say, Ad Blidai, it is enough for us to say, thank you. Where they complained, let us give thanks. Each day was a miracle. Each would have been enough to convince us that there is providence at work in our fate. As Hegel points out, slavery gives rise to a culture of resentment, a generalized discontent. The Israelites were newly released slaves. One of the signs of freedom is the capacity for gratitude. Only a free person can thank with a full heart. So one of the expressions of freedom on Seder night is our ability to say thank you. So Dayenu is an exercise in saying thank you, which itself is a repair, a tikkun, a correction of our experience in the Midbar, where over and over and over again we failed to say thank you. Have a fantastic day and a great Shabbos.